Good morning, everyone. Man, it is good to see you guys. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Bridgewater. And if we haven't met yet, um, I look forward to getting to meet you here soon. We are in the middle of a series called Starting Point. As I've told you um, over the last couple of weeks, this is a series that we've adapted from some things, a video series that we do every, you know, a couple times a year. Maybe some of you have been through it, but we found it to be so helpful that we just wanted to take the time here with everyone and walk through it. If you haven't been here for the first couple of weeks, um, I'm not going to be able to catch you up on, actually, we'll just start right now and we'll re-preach it all. Should we, should we do that? Yeah. No, we're not, we're not going to do that this morning. I, I can't catch you up on everything, but if you want to be able to catch up on what we've already talked about, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can listen to our podcast. We have it at our Vestal Podbean right here, and, or you can see any of our other campuses. You can, you can watch the, the Montrose campus. You can listen to any of the other campuses as well um, on our website there, okay? So make sure and check those out. But let me give you a quick rundown of what we've been talking about. What if there could actually be a starting point or an adult starting point or a re-starting point for faith? If you're anything like me, the faith that I was given, I, I grew up going to church. Some of you grew up going to church. Some of you grew up going to mass. Some of you uh, grew up going to synagogue. Some of you didn't go to church at all. But if you're anything like me, the faith that you were handed when you were young, once you started hitting some of the difficulties of adult life, it started to bring a lot of questions. At least it did for me. And it made me wrestle with the question, does faith actually hold up under the rigors of adult life? And if it doesn't, maybe we need to go back and examine the faith that we were handed. Maybe we need to go back and, and, and wrestle with some of the things that we were taught when we were younger and see if there can be a new starting point for faith. Now, last week we talked about um, a big problem. We talked about the problem of, well, this word that we really only use in church context. We talked about the problem of sin. We don't really talk about sin in our, in our daily lives at work. You don't get called in by your boss and your boss says to you, hey, I need to talk with you about some of your sins. If you, if you did, you'd probably think that was a little weird. You know, again, like we said last week, you, if you get pulled over by the police, you know, you, you don't get a sin citation. No one talks to you like that. We tend to think of ourselves more as mistakers than sinners, but the reality is um, some of us plan our mistakes and some of us do the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so what are we? The reality is we aren't mistakers, we're sinners. And today, I want to start talking with you about how we deal with that mess that we've all contributed to. 
I want to start talking with you about the fact that there, that, that there is a mess. And frankly, when we're honest, we, we can be a bit of a mess. And we also kind of have a little bit of a faulty idea about what we're supposed to do with our mess. You know? Do you know what the common idea is about our messes? Here's the common idea about our messes. It goes a little bit like this. That you have to clean up what you mess up. Any of you have kids? I've taught my kids this, okay? I I look forward to the day when they grasp it. (laughs) That, you know, you, you make a mess in the living room, and what are you supposed to do? Clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere, clean up. Yeah, right? Okay. If you don't remember anything else, you're going to remember that. So you're welcome. <laughs> There's just this common idea that you, you clean up what you mess up. And I think we've translated that common idea even into our relationships with God. Let me, let me tell you a little, little story. Um, years and years ago when I was in college, in my junior year in college, I got to serve as an RA or a resident advisor. It was great. I was responsible for, for 50 guys on my wing. I had to make sure that, you know, day in and day out, they were keeping the dorm clean and everybody was, you know, you know behaving relatively well anyway, and, you know, staying in line. I had to go around and do room checks, and I had to deal with curfew and all of that and make sure everybody was in. But then I also got to lead in discipling these 50 young guys and teaching them God's Word and, and coming alongside them. And it was, it was great. I, I loved it. Until one night, late one night, at about 12.45 in the morning, I received a phone call. Now, this was in the early days of cell phones. Yes, I am that old, okay? And in the early days of cell phones, when you got a phone call on your, on your cell phone, you would see the number, but, but it wouldn't tell you who was on the other end. Nowadays, cell phones will tell you, even if you don't know this person, they may tell you who it is. And if I had seen on my cell phone at 1245 in the morning, Polk County Jail, I might not have answered the phone. But that's who was calling. I picked it up, said hello. And the officer on the other end of the line said, is this Aaron Patton? I said, yes. He said, I am calling on behalf of someone who I believe lives in your dorm. His name is Derek. And Derek is here, and he said he didn't know who else to call. And I said, okay, why is that? He said, because he's afraid to call his parents. Great. This is going to be fun. He put Derek on the phone, and Derek proceeded to tell me that he had been pulled over, and he had been arrested, and he was being held for $1,000 bail Uh, because he had been arrested for paraphernalia and he had drugs on him. Now, this was at a a Bible college. It shouldn't surprise us that people, even in those realms, struggle with all kinds of things. But the reality is, he was calling me, and I said, Okay, Derek, well, why are you calling me? He said this, and this is where it got fun. Can you please get $1,000 and come and bail me out of jail? 
And you know what I told him? Here I am, holding my phone. I love my guys. And I said, no way, Derek. You got into this mess. You figure it out. Click. Why are you laughing? Seriously, why are you laughing? You're laughing because that's not what I said to him. At least some of you are nervously laughing. You're like, I hope that's not what you said to him. Because you think that that's probably not what I said to him. And, and actually, you're right. It's not what I said to him. I said to him, Derek, okay, I don't know how I'm going to get the money, but I'll get it figured out, and I'll get down there, and we are going to work through this together. But, oh, by the way, when I pick you up, you're calling your parents. Now, some of you laughed because you, you thought that's not what I would say. Why? Because you think that I am compassionate. And some of us think that this right here, this you have to clean up what you mess up, is how God interacts with us, which means you think that God would have said to Derek, Derek, you got to figure out your mess on your own. You got into it. You figure it out. Click. Which means you think that I am more compassionate than God which means you think I may actually be more godly than God, and I am not. I am not. And this idea that we have to clean up what we mess up, especially as it pertains to our relationship with God, dealing with our messes, dealing with our sin, has led us to have a very unfortunate view of who God is and how He interacts with us. Because the reality is that when we made a mess, when our world has been a mess, instead of just walking away, instead of God just saying, that's it, I'm done, and walking away, God decided to wade into our mess. We find that Illustrated perfectly in the life of one man. His name was Abraham. I, I'm sure you've, 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 more than likely, most of you have heard of this man. But Abraham lived in a time when the world was a mess. Abraham lived in a time where if you had the strength and the power or the money or the ability... If you wanted something, you could go and take it. If you wanted someone, you could go and take them. If you had the ability to do something, you could go and do it. Whatever it was, whenever it was, however you got it, you could go and take it. And God, in the midst of that mess, rather than walking away and <laughs> washing his hands of it and saying, that's it, I'm done, God decided to wade into the mess. And he demonstrates for us something about how we can have a personal relationship, a personal starting point for a relationship with God. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been talking about the starting point for Christianity and how the resurrection is a starting point. We've been talking about how at some point we have to realize that when Jesus came into the world and he talked about sin, he talked about sin in the realm of restoration, not just condemnation. 
Today I want to talk with you about how you can actually begin a personal relationship with God. And it starts in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. A time when God waded back into our mess. The first time we hear about Abraham is in Genesis 11, and then in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to interact with Abraham, and I want you to see what it says. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, the scripture tells us, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldees. This is not a, a, a Christian group of people, so to speak. Not even anything, I mean, the Jewish nation didn't exist at this point. These were a group of people who, who had given their lives over to idol worship. In fact, we find out later that even Abram's father, a man named Terah, was involved in idol worship. Abram wasn't this moral, upstanding citizen. There wasn't anything special about him. He didn't live someplace special. His birth order wasn't special. God just chose him and made promises to him. Look at what happened. Leave your native country, leave your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And then he tells him what he's going to do. In verse 2, he says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. Then in verse 3, he gives the final promise. He says this, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So when God decided to wade in, when God decided not to wash his hands of the wickedness of the world, he decided to wade in, he chose a man named Abraham, and he made some promises to him. In fact, God's solution with Abraham started with these three promises to Abraham. Let me, let me just point them out really quickly, okay? You, you can see them there in those first three verses, but let me draw attention to them. Promise number one. Here's what he said. I will make you into a great nation. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Regardless of who you think this promise was given to, because there are different people groups on the earth today who think this promise was given to them, Okay, the, the, the Arab nations believe this promise was given to them. The, the Israelites believe this promise was given to them. Regardless of who you think it was given to, it has been fulfilled. Let me show you. First of all, starting with Abraham, okay? God made this promise, and then what did he do? Eventually, God gave Abraham some sons. Okay, so we have from Abraham, Ishmael, the daughter or the son that was given to him by, by his wife's handmaid, and then Isaac, this son that the scriptures describe as a son of promise. From there, we find a, nations that come. All of the Arab nations trace their ancestry back to Ishmael, and then even all the way back to Abraham. Out of Isaac, we find the son Jacob. And out of Jacob, we find 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. What was the first promise? I will make a great nation from you. Certainly, God has kept that promise. Promise number two. He said, I will bless and I will make you famous. Now, let me, let me, let me just take a quick survey, okay? Okay. Um, 
And I realize even if I asked you, um, you, you know, some of you wouldn't, wouldn't raise your hand. But ha- how many of you would say, have you, you've heard of Abraham before? Just, just by a quick raise of hands. Like, you've, you've, you've heard of Abraham. Okay. This, by the way, this is 4,000 years later, and you've heard of Abraham. I venture to say that in about uh, 60 years, 50 to 60 years after I die, no one will know my name. I mean, my kids and their kids might trace back, and that's about it. I venture to say it's probably true for you. 4,000 years later, a whole room of people know the name Abraham. What about, what about this name? Do you know this name? Do you know this name? King Eason? You ever heard that name before? King Eason? King Eason was the king of Babylon, the largest nation on planet earth during the days of Abraham. And you're telling me you've never heard his name before? You've never heard of him? I mean, he was famous. He was world famous. He's the the Donald Trump or whoever you want to say, you know. That's who he is. And you've never heard of him? But you've heard of Abraham? Isn't that interesting? Promise number three. All the families on the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Now, the, the Arab nations would say, that's, that's come true. There have been great blessings. That's what they would say, okay? The, the Jewish nation would say, there have been so many blessings. There have been blessings, uh, it, it, you know, all sorts of things, financially and medically and technology-wise that have come into the world through them. Christians even today would say, there have been so many blessings. How many hospitals, how many orphanages, how many, how many medical works have been done all over the world in the name of Christianity, which traces its history back through Abraham, right? It seems pretty clear to me that God has kept his three promises. But here's the deal. When Abraham was still alive, God made these promises to him when he was about 74, 75 years old, okay? And Abraham kept waiting and waiting and waiting. He hit 80. When am I going to have kids? Some of you are doing the math, carrying the... That, that, that's pretty old for having kids. He hit 85. He hit 90. He hit 95. He waited 25 years and nothing had happened. Abraham was 99 years old and still nothing had happened. And in Genesis chapter 15, we find an incredible interaction between God and Abraham around these promises that God had made. And in the midst of it, Abraham does something that shows us what it looks like to have a personal relationship with God. Look at what happens. Genesis 15 verse 1. Sometime later, yeah, 25 years, that's a long time. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram. 
for I will protect you and your reward will be great. Okay, but put yourself in that situation. You're almost 100 years old. God had promised to you, you know, a, a line of descendants and nothing is happening. How are you feeling right now? I'm afraid. I'm freaked out. I'm feeling insecure. I'm wondering, God, did, did, did I mess up? Did you forget me? Hey, over here, you know, the one you made those promises to, and I'm still living in a tent in the middle of nowhere. Like, what is going on? So then Abram shares his concerns with God. Look at what he says. Verse 2. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? You made these promises, and yet nothing has changed. God, you made all these promises. Ever, ever felt like that? Like, God, you made all these promises, and you tell me all these things, but nothing has changed. That's how Abram was feeling. He says, since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, he will inherit all of my wealth. He will be the one that, that, that passes on my line, and it won't even be my line. Verse 3, he says to him, he says, you have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. What does the Lord say to him? The Lord responds and he says this. No, your servant will not be your heir. For you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And God says this to Abraham and it's like, okay, great, more talk, more talk. But this time he takes him outside of the tent and he talks to him and he tells him to do something. Look at what happens. In verse 5, he says, the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. Now, we're, we're not, you know, we're not talking about a world in which there was all kinds of light pollution, okay? We're not talking about, about you know, living in downtown Binghamton and looking up into the scar, stars at night. We're talking, you live out in Brackney and it, there's nothing and it is quiet. And you can't see anything. And you look up and what do you do? 1, 2, 3, 4, 37, 38, 99, 100. You, you remember that old game? And you keep going and going and going and going and going. And look at what God says to him. He says, that's how many descendants you will have. Okay. All right, Abraham. I told you 25 years ago, I'm getting more explicit here. I'm not just telling you you'll be a great nation. I'm telling you, you will have a son, and you will have descendants, and they're going to number more than the stars in the sky that you can count. Got it? Okay, good. Everybody in? Ready? Break. I would still struggle with that. How about you? Can we just acknowledge the difficulty of that? But verse 6 accounts for us something that is so strange and, and, and like 
so out of the ordinary, something that no one in that world would have expected. Again, it's a world where you, you earn what you get. It's a world where you're either born into a family that has all kinds of blessings and so you're good, or you behave your way into it, you earn it, you go and get it. But what is recorded for us is it had nothing to do with birth, it had nothing to do with behavior. What's recorded for us is this, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed him. Okay, Lord, I'm 99. I have no children, no descendants of my own. You say, I will have these descendants. You say they will number more than the stars of the sky. Okay. I believe you. I believe you. And I want you to see what God did with that. Because what, what God did with that is so foreign, again, like I said, to this culture and this world that it's, it's hard to believe. Look at what God did with it. In the end of verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. The thing that made all the difference in the world for Abraham and, and having a starting point for a relationship with God was that Abraham believed. He said, okay, I, I don't see it. I don't physically have a, a, a child here. I don't see this nation. I don't see you. Who am I? How are people going to remember me and know me and be blessed through me? I don't see it, but I'll believe you. And God counted it or credited it to his account as righteousness. God saw Abraham, who, by the way, the, the book of Genesis is filled with Abraham's failures, his, his, his lying ways, his struggles to trust and believe God, even despite all of that, which is not much different from you and me, God counted him as righteous. Why? Because of his faith. Here, here, here's the whole thing. Abraham's story teaches us that trusting God resulted in a right relationship with God. Trusting Him, actually hearing Him and trusting Him and believing Him and depending on Him, that's the thing that resulted in a right relationship with God. Now, in, in his world... In his world in that day, you want to know what made the gods happy with you? For many people, they thought it was, it was birth. It was like, if you're born into the right family, you're good. 
and you'll be taken care of. Many people thought it was behavior. It was, hey, if you behave well enough, it's, if your good deeds, it's that same thing that we wrestle with today. If your good deeds outweigh your bad, if your behavior is good, then you're in good with God. And yet, Abraham teaches us that it's not birth, that it's not behavior, it's actually belief. That's all it is. And if the book of Genesis wasn't enough for us, even later into the New Testament, Abraham continues to be written about. One of the most foundational books of the whole New Testament, the book of Romans, which clearly walks through what, what, ha- what it looks like to have a relationship with God, says this in Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham. It says, it says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? I love this. Like, what did Abraham find out? What did he figure out about having a right relationship with God? Was it birth? Was it behavior? Was it belief or some combination of the three? What what is it? What What did he discover? Well, Paul writes for us and explains it. He says in verse 2, he says this. He says, if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. And I love the way this is put because it's telling us that it's also not his way for you and it's also not his way for me. Verse 3, for the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him, credited it to him, put it on his account that he was righteous. Wow. Scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and counted him as righteous because of his faith. So here's the thing. As we're wrestling through a starting point for faith, a starting point for a relationship with God, looking at looking at. At, at maybe what we were taught when we were young, maybe even the things the world likes to tell us, maybe even the fears that you would ever have about walking into a, a, a church or a, a religious gathering of some sort, there really is a question for each one of us to wrestle with. And the question goes like this, what if the starting point for a relationship with God is trust? What if when God says, trust me, he really means it? I realize that there can be all sorts of questions. There are things that I don't understand. There are things, questions that I can, I, I, I can have about the scripture, and yet time and time again, God comes back and says, trust me. Trust me. Here's Abraham, 75 years old, and God makes promises. And, he's, and he says to Abraham, trust me. And 25 years go by, thinks he's getting older and older and older. And Abraham's looking around and seeing, and he has questions, and he can't figure it all out. And God just says, trust me. Trust me. 
He doesn't say, go clean up what you've messed up. He says, trust me. Interestingly enough, the full picture of a starting point for faith involves someone who came in and cleaned up what I messed up. His name is Jesus, and we're going to dig more into him throughout the rest of this series. But I just wonder if you would consider that the starting point for you a personal relationship, not, not your parents' relationship with God, yours, if you would consider that the personal starting point for faith is not your birth, it's not whether or not your mama or your daddy were good people or went to church or taught you all the right things, it's not behavior, it's not whether or not you avoided doing all those things in college, it's not whether or not you have some nights that you wish that you could just forget, it's not your behavior, it's actually belief, it's trust. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask each one of you to join me today in taking some time to think about what it would look like. What would it look like for you today to evaluate whether or not you trust him? When you came in this morning, in the seat back in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row, they're sitting on the the seats there. In the seat back in front of you, there's a little card that looks like this. It's got the starting point logo on it. And here in a minute, some of our team is going to come and they're going to sing a song for us to just give us some time to stop and think and listen to God. And here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to take that card, put your name on it, and wrestle with these four choices. Here they are. There's a, B, C, and D are four boxes there. I wonder if you could describe for me where you are. Is it the first one? I'm interested in learning more about trusting Jesus. If that's you, great. Let us know. I'm not, I'm not going to hound you. We're not going to hound you. But we'll just ask you a simple question and say, is there any way that we can help? Is it number two or B, I've already trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. Okay, great. Praise God. Is it C, I'm ready to trust Jesus today, today? Or is it D, I'm not interested in trusting Jesus right now? And that's okay if that's you. But I just want to ask you, while Isaac leads us and just sings and gives us some time to think, would you evaluate for yourself where you're at in that question? What if the starting point for a personal faith was 